We'll hear argument next in number 94923, Ruth Shaw versus James B. Hunt. Number 94924, James Pope versus James B. Hunt. Mr. Abbott, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I suppose I'd better do one thing at the outset to maintain the honor of North Carolina. There was a question about two of the districts in Texas being, I believe, the least compact in the country. And uh, I have here perfect evidence that we have four of the least compact. Justice O'Connor will remember this map because it was appended to her opinion in Shaw v. Reno. And the 12th, I think, the snake leads the country. The court's opinion, Mr. Everett. I saw you on it. The court's opinion, not mine. The court's opinion. opinion. The, one, well, the one which you authored. I, I, I apologize, Your Honor. But in any event, the court became aware of the absence of compactness, which leads into another point. There was a discussion of the difference between narrow tailoring and broad tailoring. I think we have here the exhibit of no tailoring. And I'd like to make one other point just to explain why we are here, and perhaps it reflects a rather naive understanding of the, of the Constitution and the Equal Protection Clause. But my impression has been that if there were two water fountains over there, one of which said African-American and another of which said women, and another over here which said, uh, said male and said white, and if that, in effect, was here with the signs, that I'd be perfectly entitled to go to any one of those four fountains and drink the water. The water would be the same everywhere, but the court, no, no other public body, no state, no federal body, could approve racial classifications. And the reason we're here is because this map reflects a redistricting plan, which, in effect, is a racial classification. That's what this is about. That map says there are two black districts and there are ten white districts. Does it say that the people in those districts can drink at either water fountain? Can they both, both either Democratic or Republican as they, they choose? They, they can vote as they please, Justice Stevens. But on the other hand, they are preconditioned in their behavior by the fact that these districts carry a message. They carry a message for the Same voters. Same message your signs carry. Your Honor? The same message that your signs carry, I guess, but they actually didn't inhibit the same, you to pick, the, pick exactly. the fountain you wanted to pick. We're, we're saying that these, though, carry a message, and the signs would be impermissible. If this court did that and had these labels, I would certainly be entitled to make a motion and get an injunction and have those signs taken down. We would maintain by the same token... Oh, no, you'd get it from. <laughs> I, would, I would hope at least we could get a majority, but uh, in any event... It would seem to me that what we are saying is these signs, these labels, should be removed. Now, in order that there's no question about the status and the standing of the, of the, of the plaintiffs and the plaintiff interveners, I should note that according to the court's determination, the plaintiffs and the plaintiff interveners had established, and this is on page 110A, had established that they are registered to vote in North Carolina congressional elections 
and that the challenged redistricting plan assigns them to vote in particular electoral districts, at least in part because of their race, which is to say that Professor Shim is assigned to the 12th district, at least in part because of the racial determinations. He is a white filler person. And on the other hand, there are three of us who are plaintiffs who are assigned to the second district because of our race. We, because our district was bleached. Now, interestingly enough, and Justice Scalia called attention in the Texas case to an example of what we might refer to as Orwellian doublespeak. The minority opportunity district, I think, was the phrase. Mr. Everett, there is some difference, isn't there, with respect to the standing of the plaintiffs in this case, with respect to one district and the other? We would, we would maintain, Your Honor, that due to the ripple effect, all, all these plaintiffs have standing as to all the districts. Well, but supposing we don't accept the ripple effect, uh, there is some difference, isn't there? Oh, uh, Professor Shim and Mrs. Shaw are in the 12th district. Uh, the rest of us are in different districts. None of us is in the 1st district, but the 1st district was constructed by taking the what would have been the 2nd district and playing around with it and changing the boundaries so that our position would be that all of us, and this is really the, ra the rationale, I think, of the court below, that all of us were affected because of the seamless web. Suppose, but what about Hayes, our decision in Hayes? I mean, couldn't the plaintiffs there have made the same argument about Louisiana that it's a seamless web? And we, we didn't accept that. Well, I don't believe they made it. As I recall, I was, I was here at the argument, well, and I don't think it was articulated in that particular fashion. But our position would be this, Your Honor, as a practical matter. The 12th district, because of its interpenetration, is essential uh, to the plan. If you knock out the 12th district, there is no plan. And as a, as a consequence, and since Professor Shim and Mrs. Shaw clearly have standing, it really doesn't make much difference. The, the question is before you, is this plan a violation of equal protection? You're saying, you're saying that a person who has a right to challenge one district by reason of residence in that district has a right to challenge the entire plan. I would say that it's a different honest. argument from the ripple effect. It's, it's, I would say that in this particular situation, given the interpenetration of the plan, that would be true. Now, in, including the, uh, including the aspects of the plan uh, uh, that that you claim are invalid with respect to other districts. We would, we would, we would think across the board in this situation, and we would note this, Your Honor, that the well, I will admit, Cherokee County over here. Up near Tennessee, I'm not really saying that I'd have much standing, perhaps, to challenge that. But as a practical matter, everything in the middle and the eastern part of North Carolina is so tied together. As a practical matter, it is one plan. It, it is like the, uh, the unitary school system in the, in the Keys case, which promulgated from one source. It was a un, it's a unitary plan, and we would maintain we have standing. One thing I'd like to call to the court's attention and we stress it in our, in our brief because we think it's important. That is what was said two and a half years ago when we were here and what's happened in between. When I argued the case two and a half years ago, the counsel for the state appellee, and this is pointed out in our brief on page four, said this case is about the legal significance of two facts. First, the North Carolina General Assembly intentionally created two majority-minority congressional districts. Second, the General Assembly did so 
for the purpose of complying with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and of securing preclearance of its congressional reapportionment plan from the Attorney General of the United States. In response to a question from the court, the same counsel stated, he's not here this time, there's a different counsel for the state, but he presumably spoke with authority, there's no dispute here over what the state's purpose is, there's a dispute over how to characterize it legally, but we're not in disagreement about what the state legislature was trying to do. Then again, and this is quoted on page 27 of our brief, in the footnote, counsel for the state defendant stated to the court, the determining factor in this case is that North Carolina is subject to Section 5 preclearance. And then later, Section 2 may, depending on the particular demographics and the situation of the state, require a majority-minority districting. But once again, that's not this case. So we were here two and a half years ago thinking the case had to do with whether or not Section 5 was involved. And the state put forth what we characterized as the Nuremberg defense. The Department of Justice made us do it. The Civil Rights Division made us do it. They wouldn't give us preclearance. Now, I was also here during the argument when the Solicitor General was asked back in April this year about the policy of the Department of Justice. And it seems very clear from the findings made in the Hayes case, the original Hayes case, from the findings in the Georgia case, which you are well familiar with, from everything about it, that just as was said here to this very court two and a half years ago, and just as was admitted in the defendant's answer, they did it in order to get preclearance. What did they do? They enacted this constitutional monstrosity, which replaced another constitutional monstrosity, but a less aggravated monstrosity. They did it in order to get preclearance. So when we left here, or when we got the decision, actually, uh, in summer of 1993, and we read about the gerrymander and what the court said, racial gerrymander, strict scrutiny, we thought it was a fairly simple case. Go back. We are, can we prove there's a racial gerrymander? Of course we can. This, this map almost speaks for itself. Everything else spoke for itself. The record, the, the submission in Chapter 7 says the overriding purpose of the state, the state of North Carolina, is to create these districts and to obtain preclearance. How could it be clear? So, but there's a very ingenious counsel on the other side. And then we learned that it wasn't really a racial gerrymander. Oh, no. And it wasn't just Section 2. Oh, no. And it wasn't, well, it was Section, I mean, it wasn't just Section 5, pardon me. It was also Section 2. And it was also remedying past discrimination. Very innovative. And moreover, we didn't have, none of us had standing, everything. We had all of it. The state appropriated a half million dollars to put up this defense. Various people came in to battle us along the way. Mr. Everett, may I ask you this question? Do you find something legally or constitutionally inconsistent with the position uh, the last time around, uh, or at least the assumption the last time around, that the reason for the, the configuration uh, was to obtain Section 5 preclearance? And the reason found here, uh, I strike the word reason, and the fact found here, uh, that in fact the configuration was uh, a, a means uh, 
to comply with Section 2. Are those two inconsistent? Your Honor, I used to teach evidence a couple of times. We have prior inconsistent statements that are admissible because they tend to impeach. But I'm not asking whether they're inconsistent. Well, I'd say... One says the motive motive the first time was to obtain Section 5 preclearance, period. Assume that. I'm assuming that. That's the only question they say. And and the finding now is that that configuration uh, was necessary and hence justifiable uh, to avoid a Section 2 violation. Are those two propositions inconsistently... They are in this context, Justice Souter. They are inconsistent when it's a question of what the North Carolina General Assembly intended in January well, of... That, that may be, but that wasn't my question. My question wasn't whether they had two different intents. My question was, if we assume that the intent was, in fact, to, to get a Section 5 preclearance, and we know from Shaw that that is not adequate, we do is there anything inconsistent with saying it is nonetheless justifiable now because, in fact, it was necessary to avoid a Section 2 violation and hence... Your Honor, let me, let me, are those two propositions inconsistent? Let me, let me say, in this context, they are very inconsistent. No, they're, they're, they're not. I mean, the, the, the one goes to intent, and the other goes to uh, the pure fact of whether it was necessary, not whether it was intended. Well, so they're not inconsistent. If, if they can prove that it was indeed necessary, that there's no other thing you could have done, I, I think that's a hard thing to prove, but uh, that, that no other configuration could possibly have been adopted which would comply with Section 2, I suppose... If they can prove that, it's certainly not inconsistent with the Justice fact Scalia. that they intended to do Section 5. Justice Scalia, if they didn't intend to do it, they didn't intend to do it, and they can't justify it. In other words, as I understand it... That's a different means, argument, though. But you're, so you're saying that the only justification at this stage is the justification of their original intent. And we've now, this court has found that that, uh, that intent, i.e., confer, uh, conform to uh, get Section 5 preclearance is inadequate, so that's the end of the case. Is that your position? That is part of our position, Your Honor. We think that is... Let, let me just pursue that for a moment. Assume, I'm not asking you to assume it's true in this case, but just assume that it is, in fact, uh, reasonably necessary to conform to Section 2. Are we supposed to ignore that, or is a, is a three-judge district court supposed to ignore that fact? Your Honor, if it is a matter of justifying something under strict scrutiny, something that is a racial gerrymander, and if the legislature that adopted the racial gerrymander didn't even think about it, then we would maintain that in order to, make, to have the integrity of equal protection and to protect the constitutional rights of us voters, yes, that should be done. Okay, the case goes back. Court says unconstitutional. Go back and come up with a new plan. They go back. And they conclude, we'll assume, again, for not necessarily in this case, but we'll assume uh, in, in the hypo, that it is necessary to avoid a Section 2 violation. So they, we, they redraw the map. And it looks like the last map. New case. May the Section 2 violation be considered by the three judge? May the claim that it is reasonably necessary to avoid a Section 2 violation be considered by the three judge court? Your Honor, I would not say they are stopped from considering it or anything of that sort. What I would suggest is, on the facts of this case, since they said Section 2. No, but I want you to answer my hypo. Fine. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting to you that my hypo is this case, and I'm not asking you to concede that. But on my hypo, may the three judge district court consider the defense, if you want to put it that way, uh, that this is reasonably necessary to avoid a Section 2 violation? Uh, two aspects of that. The first place, they'd have to be sure there is no 
fruit of the poisonous tree. There's no carryover from the alleged denial that, of that goes to the sort of to the so. to the facts of the particular case. May they, just as a general proposition, consider it as a defensive matter that it is reasonably necessary to avoid a Section 2 violation? Your Honor, uh, we're going to take an outlandish position. We don't believe that under Section 2 that's enough to protect it from constitutional. Maybe, maybe it isn't, but maybe it, and, 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 be, and, and that then may lead you to, a, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to claim that Section 2 uh, is unconstitutional or whatever. But is it relevant as a defense? May the court consider it. We would maintain that given the purposes of Section 2, as we understand it, that it would not be permissible to use it as a vehicle for imposing two majority-minority districts in a that particular That wasn't my question. May the court consider it as an appropriate defense? We would say no, Your Honor. So are you saying then that, a, that, the, that the object to avoid a Section 2 violation as a matter of law may not be considered as a justification under strict scrutiny? We do not believe, Your Honor, that it, it, it can, constitutes a compelling interest given the purposes of, the, of Section 2 and its process orientation. By the way, there's an excellent discussion of that by Professor Bloomstein in his recent Rutgers Law Review paper. Is, is the reason for it, for your answer, essentially, that Section 2 is unconstitutional? Uh, our position would be that Section 2, as properly construed and narrowed, is probably constitutional, but that certainly to use it as a vehicle for compelling majority-minority districts is unconstitutional. How about a voluntary majority-minority district? I think you, you said you're about to say something some people may consider outlandish. Are you saying that, that if the avowed purpose is to create a majority-minority district, no matter how compact it is, if people are honest about that's what they're trying to accomplish, that that's unconstitutional? Your Honor, we say this. If it is a label of race, they say we want a black district, we want a Hispanic district, and that's the purpose, and that's the label, then that, in our view at least, right or wrong, is a violation of equal protection. Now, Am I right that there are many congressional districts, many state districts across the country where people said exactly that, we want a majority-minority district? So on your reasoning, a good deal of the redistricting was unconstitutional. On our reasoning, a good deal of the redistricting that followed the, uh, the, the 1990 census was unconstitutional because it, does, it is result-oriented in a manner of labeling, just like labeling the water fountains in my example. Would, that, would you take that position um, even um, in circumstances in which uh, to accomplish the goal the legislature did not resort to uh, drawing the lines on the basis of race, but rather on the basis of uh, voter registration? Uh, if it's a matter of, say, Democrat, Republican, that's certainly. Their goal was admittedly <clears throat> to get a majority-minority district, but to achieve it, they put in the computer program data about uh, voter registration, Democrat, Republican, Independent, and they drew the districts on that basis. If the goal is defined by race, <clears throat> then our position is it's impermissible. As, for example, in case... That uh, 
cannot be done, even if uh, the boundaries are drawn on the basis of voter registration? If it's voter I'm not sure I understand exa exactly, Your Honor. But You've got a computer program to draw the boundaries, and you plug into the computer how the voters are registered, Democrat, Republican, Independent, Dixiecrat, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And the lines are drawn on that basis. There's no race there, as I understand. The goal was to create a majority-minority district, but it is accomplished by using non-racial data. Your Honor, we think the goal is impermissible. Let me analogize to this. I can see the – well, if you want to have Democrats control or Republicans or whatever it is, uh, look at the registration of those. You may know that there's a heavy Democratic registration, say, in North Carolina, where 95 percent of the African-Americans are registered as black. You may know that where there's a 95, heavy Democratic registration, there probably is a very substantial African-American population. So what? But what I am concerned about, and perhaps this is because of my reading or misreading of the peremptory challenges cases, my understanding is that if I look at a juror, I have a peremptory challenge, and I say that juror is black, therefore I don't want him in this particular case, or that juror is a woman, and I don't want her in that particular case, and I use a stereotype and I use a classification, that is wrong. If, on the other hand, as in the Hernandez case where you were dealing, as I recall, with peremptory challenges, I say this, is, this Hispanic may be interpreting for himself or herself the testimony being given rather than go through an interpreter, then I can challenge them off. It, it's, as we view it, and we perhaps take Hirabayashi and the later cases too seriously, but we really take it very seriously that racial class, classifications are odious and are subject to strict scrutiny. So then, then you would say the same principle applies to every, whether it's a city council, whether it's uh, uh, any of the hundreds of thousands of elections, that if people draw boundaries to a significant extent on the basis of race, I take it of religion, of ethnic background, of uh, uh, sex, of uh, anything uh, of that nature, that that then will come into federal court and, and they will then uh, look and see if significant boundaries in this local city council race or whatever, a significant number of those boundaries was drawn with religion in mind or uh, ethnicity or et cetera. Is that, is that actually what you're thinking? Your Honor, uh, that may sound extreme if I take that position. No, no, that may be preferable well, to saying that, that, that you can't do this in the case of a black uh, uh, effort, but you can do it in the case of any other effort. I, oh. I don't see how you can make a distinction. To, well, we, we I do agree view, with you on that dis failure difficulty of distinguishing, if that is your position. Well, Justice Breyer, we do view race as having a special significance. And well, you mean you could, in fact, say they cannot gerrymander or draw boundaries on the basis of race, but you can draw uh, if the person is uh, to, to benefit African Americans, but you can do exactly the same thing for the purpose of benefiting the Jews or the Catholics or uh, any other group in society? No, we would say that if there is, let's say, a Jewish district, and if Professor Shem, who is Jewish, is put there because he is Jewish... Well, I mean, are you distinguishing whether it's a whole district or part of a district? Or what, what, is the, what, I'm trying, what are you distinguishing? Our, our distinction is in terms of purpose, very much like the Batson situation, where if there is a purpose to do it on a racial basis or an ethnic basis or a, or a religious basis or a gender basis, then that is impermissible. Now, hopefully, hopefully, when this court makes that message loud and clear that this is impermissible unless it can survive strict scrutiny, 
hopefully people will get the message. And it's not going to happen in that city council. Just like now, you don't have problems about equipopulousness to the same extent. Classification on the basis of gender has not been subject to strict scrutiny in the past. It's no, subject to a kind of intermediate or quasi-strict scrutiny. I, Your Honor, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I, I leaped over in my enthusiasm into another area of gender, and that is certainly a, uh, a different situation. Yes, you, Mr. Everett, supposing you have a case in which it's perfectly clear that the legislature decided to uh, create two majority-minority districts. Uh, is there any way in the world in which the plan could survive strict scrutiny? What, what factors would enable it ever to survive? Well, Your Honor, we, we would think there would have to be so many circumstances totally different from those in North Carolina. It no, may but just be what are the kind of factors that would enable Is there any, any set of facts? As your argument is pretty firm, it seems to me. Well, there, there if may... we know they, tried, they wanted two minority-majority districts, that's the end of the ballgame. Well, one thing that would be very important is the sort of consideration that was outlined of totality of circumstances in Johnson. Sure, but I haven't understood everything you've been saying. If your answer to that isn't a clear yes, I, I, don't, I don't know what you've been saying. I, I, I thought you've been saying the motivation cannot be racial. That's it. And if I set out to create two majority-minority districts, that's, that's exactly it. the end of it, right? I there, think there is no way to get by the strict scrutiny hurdle if that original intent is established. And I don't think there's much doubt about it in this case. I don't think you need all this funny map and say they, they wanted to comply with what they thought was necessary to satisfy the Department of Justice. And they created two majority-minority districts. Why do we have to have a trial? Yeah, that, that's, that's really your position. Isn't yeah, it? our position is yeah. that race is impermissible. You can't use it for purpose. We cannot really think of any situation where it could be... And really, justified. the shape merely confirms the other evidence of intent. It is evidence. So, so you take the position that if strict scrutiny um, is applied, it's fatal, uh, in fact, necessarily, that nothing survives strict scrutiny. As to majority-minority districts in almost anything, any situation we can conceive of, if they are created for a racial purpose per, per se... We believe they could not survive. I have, a case I, where, I have thought that we had indicated that it is possible to survive strict scrutiny if there is a compelling state interest and if the plan is narrowly tailored. I had thought that's what this court had said, but you're arguing for something else, it sounds like. Well, Your Honor, I, I suppose I'm descending from the theoretical to the practical in that we have been unable to conceive of anything at least in our limited experience. Compliance which, with Section 2 could not be a compelling state interest, or it could? We, we would consider that it could not be uh, it, for the creation of majority-minority Do you districts. have to take that position to prevail in this oh, case? Absolutely not. Absolutely oh. not. Uh, what is your secondary position? Our secondary position is that it is clear there was not a, a re-evaluation under Section 2, that uh, sec the Section 5 denial of pre-clearance tainted everything, that just as the as a state representative when it came up here the first time, uh, it was a matter of, of fulfilling the mandate of the Justice Department, just as it was in Miller, and therefore they should fall, just as uh, the Georgia redistricting fell. Moreover, uh, there was no totality of circumstances analysis. There is no ability to satisfy the jingles preconditions to whatever extent they still are preconditions. There is an actual, very overt, mathematically demonstrable error in the opinion of the court that they can be created two geographically compact majority-minority uh, districts. You can tell from this map and from the maps that show the concentrations of black population that it is simply impossible. The court completely misconstrued the numerical facts, including one of the tables. And when you take all that together, the Section 2 compliance argument, uh, 
is an afterthought. I have a map here. It says Plan NEC Shaw 2 Type TGB Shaw 2 Map 2. Oh, Your Honor. The compact one. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking right. about. That, why wasn't that the compact with two? Well, Your Honor, majority black is 50%. The very table that was relied on by the majority below shows 44%. 44% is less than 50%, and therefore, as a matter of mathematically demonstrable fact, the court was wrong. They also refer to other examples of geographically compact districts. Those other districts contain the equivalent of Section 12. Now, if anyone here, some things you can see, and I'm sure all of you all have 20-20 vision juridically and otherwise, you can see that that is not geographically compact. So they create new concepts, functional. To, I'm Thank sorry, you, Mr. Everett. Uh, Mr. Farr, we'll, uh, I think we'll recess, we'll recess and resume at 1 o'clock. Mr. Farr, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, speaking for the plaintiff interveners, I would like to state what we think is at issue in this case and what is not at issue. Uh, we do not believe that the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act is at issue. We believe that it is constitutional. Uh, nor do we think that whether compliance with Section 2 might, under the right case, uh, serve some compelling governmental interest. That is not an issue in this case. We think under the right case it may be a compelling governmental interest to create a district that would satisfy Section 2. If it can be a com compelling state interest in some cases, why isn't it in this? It is not a compelling state interest in, in, in uh, this case, Your Honor, for, for two reasons. Uh, uh, first, there is no evidence in this record that would show that the district adopted uh, met the Jingles preconditions. Uh, there would be no plaintiff, I think, in the United States would walk into a district court with this map and say that these are two geographically compact districts that entitle us to remedial relief under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The other reason, Your Honor, why that is not an issue in this case is because no one in the North Carolina General Assembly believed that they were creating these districts to remedy uh, violations under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It is very clear uh, that what North Carolina believed it was doing, uh, because they said so, they, they made this statement in their submission in support of Chapter 7 to the Justice Department pursuant to Section 5, was that they were creating these districts to respond to the dictates of the Justice Department. Uh, May I go back to your first reason? Why does that map bear on the question whether it was possible to create a compact district, a majority-minority compact district? And that map doesn't tell us anything about where people live. Uh, Your Honor, I think that, that uh, there's evidence in this case from which it might be concluded uh, that uh, a majority black district could be created in northeastern North Carolina and that a majority minority district could be created running from Charlotte to the southeastern part of the state. There is no evidence in this case that two majority black districts that are reasonably geographically compact could be created in this case. It's not been presented by anyone. Now, uh, we believe, Your Honors, aside from the fact that the state uh, did not comply with what is stated in Croson and Wygant, that they have to have substantial basis and evidence at the time that they adopt uh, a racial-based racial remedy, assuming that they had, uh, had done that, um, uh, Your Honor, the, the only 
defense that they have in, the, in this case is if the court adopts the notion that you may place a remedial district somewhere else in North Carolina besides the part of the state where the violation has been proven. And we think that's a very novel concept uh, uh, under every other area of law, and it ought to be a novel concept under, under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Well, would you... I don't know why that would be. I mean, if, if, you, if you buy the, uh, the proposition of racial entitlement, that is... Uh, um, it doesn't matter whether a particular black man has been discriminated against, that uh, uh, the object is the race as a whole has to be uh, 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 made good. Uh, why wouldn't that follow? It doesn't really matter what part of the state uh, you're not properly creating the black district in, so long as you create a black district somewhere. Your Honor, it's uh, sort of a racial uh, entitlement uh, theory. It has nothing to do with particular individuals who are being... Uh, uh, disadvantaged. Your Honor, uh, we think uh, that this right under the Voting Rights Act is not a right that is enjoyed by any minority in the state of North Carolina. It is the right to be free from vote dilution. And I believe that Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion in the Jingles case makes this very clear that these cases are very district-specific, that you've got to prove the Jingles conditions in, in, the, in the district in which you're trying to show the violation. And if I might explain a little bit what happened in North Carolina, there is an argument that you could make a reasonably compact majority-minority district running from Charlotte to the southeastern part of the state. This was not done for incumbency protection reasons. That's, that's undisputed that that's why this was not <coughs> adopted. It's the only district that the Justice Department pointed out in its objection letter. And again, uh, as stated earlier, there's no evidence. Uh, the Justice certainly did not suggest a majority black district. They suggested a majority-minority district. Um, in running this district up I-85, uh, the, the district took in uh, the black population in Charlotte, which constituted approximately a third of the total minority population that would have been in existence uh, if we had adopted a majority-minority district. Well, the reason, I take it, is that the, the specific argument would be that Section 2 requires the creation of two districts in North Carolina because, just as you pointed out, one could be done in that part of the state and the other in the other part of the state. And the only reason that they're in a different place is for incumbency protection reasons, and that latter reason has nothing to do with race. And if you say that you can't do that, then you're saying that you can't do it when black districts are involved, but you could do it when white districts are involved. And so that, that the latter proposition is an impossible one to, to maintain, your Honor, Legally. we would, we would so I mean that's the specific argument. So I'd appreciate your addressing that. Well, we respectfully disagree with Your Honor's position on that. Uh, I'm not taking that as a position. I'm simply asking you to address it because I think that's Your Honor, a specific argument. Your Honor, we don't think that there's evidence, nor was there ever any intention to say that uh, the state legislature should look at the state of North Carolina and conclude that minorities are entitled to proportional representation in the state of North Carolina. We believe what the first possibility is it isn't true that they'd be in violation of the Voting Rights Act. That would be, I guess, an issue. But if it turns out that they would have been, is there anything wrong with their having drawn the boundaries solely for incumbency protection? Yes, Your Honor. And what's that? We believe, Your Honor, that that uh, would fail the narrow tailoring requirement of strict scrutiny. And uh, uh, specifically, Your Honor, you're, uh, it's, it's these people in this part of North Carolina that had their votes diluted. They're the ones that have subject, been subject to an injury. But I thought the point would be that they would not be drawing it solely on the basis of, of incumbency protection. They'd be vo still be drawing the boundaries on the basis of race. Although in order 
to protect incumbents. That's, that's very true. But it would still be racial boundary drawing. And, and, and your position is that's okay when you're doing it uh, uh, in order to comply with Section 2, but it's not okay when you're doing it to protect incumbents, I suppose. Yes, I don't think incumbency protection is a compelling governmental interest, Your Honor. In fact, well, it may not be. A, no, I don't think anyone is claiming that it's a compelling governmental interest. But it is a relevant consideration, as I understand it, under Miller, in determining the extent to which uh, race predominates. Because one of the things you ask, the principal question you asked, I guess, is, has, has race subordinated traditional districting principles? Now, if one districting principle is incumbency protection, if that, as a matter of historical fact, is true, that that has been... Uh, that has been an object pursued over the years. And if that can be pursued, let's say, with political data as opposed to, uh, to racial data, which may or may not be a good surrogate for political data, if it's pursued with political data alone, then do you not concede that the boundary can vary from the compact boundary that would satisfy Gingles without flunking the narrow tailoring test? Don't you concede that? No, Your Honor, I don't concede that. Then, then tell me why not. Well, if I understood your question, you were saying, uh, and, and Justice Scalia, we believe it's a very difficult case to prove uh, a Section 2 violation, and I hope I have a chance to explain that before I sit down. But, uh, Justice Souter, uh, we again believe that the remedy must go to the people who've been injured. Uh, and, and, and if you run No, but you are saying not that the remedy must go to the people who have been injured, but that the remedy must go to all and only the people injured, and no other consideration may play a role. And if you are saying that, I think, you are, you are asking the court to depart, at least in one respect, from Miller. Because Miller says a consideration as to whether race has subordinated, uh, whether race is predominant, uh, is has race subordinated traditional districting principles. And if a traditional districting principle is incumbency protection, you are saying, well, you've got to modify Miller to the extent that incumbency protection will, will never uh, be cognizable here. So I think you're asking for a change in Miller. I don't believe I, we are, Your Honor. Well, why not? If, in, if, 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 in, if, and my assumption is, incumbency protection can be shown historically to have been a, a districting uh, objective. It's one of the things that's considered. If that is true, that historically that has been an objective pursued, and you're now saying, no, you can't pursue it yes, Your Honor. because that would modify the boundary. Yes. Then to that extent, you're, you're modifying it. Well, Your Honor, first you're assuming that concomency protection is the type of traditional districting principle that the court was referring to in, in, in but the But is, is it legitimate well, or not? Your Honor, I think there's a great distinction because on, on, uh, when you're talking about political subdivisions or county lines, you're talking about neutral criteria, and I believe that the court... Uh, discuss those issues as a frame of reference to show in a case involving circumstantial evidence whether or not uh, you could prove the intent element of the Miller claim. With incumbency protection, that is a far more subjective factor. And uh, Justice Souter, drawing a majority-minority district uh, has to be done for a compelling governmental interest. And we would suggest that uh, doing it to protect an incumbent is not compelling. Doing it to possibly comply with the Section 2 violation is, and if you're doing that, you must draw the district where the Section 2 violation exists. Thank you, Mr. Farr. Mr. Spies, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this matter first came to this court on the granting of defendant's Rule 12b-6 motion, and all of the facts of the complaint, of course, were, were presumed to be true. 
The matter was remanded to court for trial, to the district court for trial. And at the trial, extensive evidence was taken by the court. Among that evidence was specific statements by legislators and the drafters of the map that they intended to draw the 12th district as an urban district. Demographers told us without any question the 12th district is an urban district. It is the most urban district created in North Carolina. Historians told us also that the 12th district is located within the Piedmont Urban Crescent. Well, what color is the, is the 12th district on the map? The, the 12th district is orange, John. Oh, okay. It is in, located entirely within the 10 counties that make up the uh, Piedmont Urban Crescent, an area that the historians tell us has historic integrity. The historians also, excuse me, the demographers also told us that this area is laced together by interstate highways, that the district is accessible both for voters and their representatives. All of these factors combined to lead the district court to conclude that these, this district and all districts provided fair and effective representation for North Carolina citizens. And we think that's very important in this case because as this court has said, the ultimate purpose of redistricting is to provide fair and effective representation for all of North Carolina citizens, both black and white. That's what a district court is supposed to sit in judgment of, of whether a particular redistricting scheme provides fair and effective representation? It would seem to us, Your Honor, that those are very pertinent issues for the issues uh, for the court to consider in regard to the issues in front of you. I mean, it's a nice thing. Who could be against it? But I, I wouldn't want to have to. This is the kind of thing that judges and lawyers are good at doing. In this case, the evidence was presented that the district does provide fair and effective representation, and the district court found that it does, uh, in fact, do that. So we think it is important. Is that a test that every, every redistricting uh, plan in every state must meet, that the particular district provides fair and effective representation? Uh, no, Your Honor, but we think in this case that the issue of whether the district provides fair and effective representation is relevant to the issue of standing. It's relevant to the issue of whether race was the predominant motive. If race was the predominant motive, you would assume that the district might not provide fair and effective representation for white citizens. In maybe fact, so, maybe not. I'm not sure there's any correlation between the two. I, 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 you know, I suppose if we wanted to go to a system in which everybody is represented by his race, I guess that, that might be fair and effective representation. I, but it was fair and effective. Where do you get this test? I mean, I don't see it in any of our cases. I, I, uh, we get it, Your Honor, from your statements that the purpose, the ultimate purpose, the fundamental purpose of redistricting is to provide fair and effective representation. Well, of course it is, and there are certain sub-rules that, that we follow and apply to determine whether that's been done, but we just don't sit in the abstract and decide whether there's fair and effective representation. This wasn't done in the abstract, Your Honor. Specific evidence was presented that it does provide fair and effective representation. But I thought it was remanded to apply strict scrutiny, and I'm not sure how that's relevant. I thought... The court below had to de decide whether there was a compelling state interest and whether it was narrowly tailored, and I'm surprised you're not talking about that. Well, certainly uh, we do believe that this, this particular plan meets strict scrutiny. We also believe that the district court applied a too lenient test to determine whether this was a racial gerrymander subject to strict scrutiny in the first instance. What was the compelling interest that the uh, district court found? Was it to comply with the requirements of Section 2? Uh, with Section 2 and Section 5, Your Honor. All right. Now, with respect to Section 2, in District 12, I, 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 I take it that the uh, westernmost part is Gaston County. Is, am I correct in that? That is correct, Your Honor. 
before this district was drawn, uh, would the black voters in western, uh, that western part in Gaston County have had standing to bring a Section 2 vote dilution claim? Yes. I believe a black voter would have had standing oh, to bring oh, you, it. You think that they, that, there was, that they were then in a district which was compact and oh, contiguous under the Gingolstadt? Uh, I believe that a black voter in North Carolina would have had standing to no, no, bring no, a Section 2 claim asserting a violation of Section no, 2. No, based on, based on the voters in Gaston County being unrepresented in a black district. How would the Gingles requirements complied with with reference to those voters? Just assuming initially a section a section two case. The question under a sec, in a section two case would have there been have been the potential for the state of North Carolina to created to have created a geographically compact district uh, to that would have. But they, necess they, they necessarily fail that. No, Your Honor. We think that the issue for the state is whether such a district can be drawn. If it is established and there is a strong evidence for believing that a district can be drawn, then principles of federalism and the discretion the states must have in this area give to the states discretion as to where they will place that district so, so long as it provides fair and effective representation. So then the remedy has nothing to do with the initial violation? That's a very strange doctrine of law. Well, Your Honor, we believe that in this case uh, the uh, evidence is, and certainly the district court found, that there was racially polarized voting within this particular area, these areas where these districts were created. So it is our position that there is a fit between these particular well, districts must, and the Section 2 You must also find, under Gingles at least, that the other factors are present. Yes. And uh, you can't just talk about racial polarizing. You, you have to talk about compact and cohesive districts. And certainly there's no question, it's unrefuted in this case, that uh, black citizens vote together cohesively. Two districts, is, is, is there not just unrefuted evidence, is there any evidence that two compact black districts, black majority, not, not minority majority, but black majority districts could have been created? Many different districts were presented to the North Carolina General Assembly. Some were here in the southeast, where there's some concentration of black citizens. Some were here in the northeast, where there is a concentration of black citizens. Could two, some were here. Could two have been created? Is there testimony and evidence, and I'd like you to cite it to me, because your opponent contends not, that, that, that you could have had a justification for creating one majority black and one majority minority, but that there is no justification on the Gingles standards, even if you're not going to use the Gingles standards in the districts where, where you apply them for two black majority districts. Now, what, what would you cite, uh, cite me as, uh, as refuting that? Uh, I would cite you Shaw uh, 1, Shaw 2, and 3 to begin with. That is a district where uh, if you add blacks in Indians, you do have a majority-minority district. I would cite to you... I want two black majority, not majority-minority. I want two majority black districts, compact. I would cite to you the plan prepared and presented by Representative Larry Justice, which was labeled Compact 2, which and I believe creates and was presented in January of 1992 to the General Assembly, which is contained, a map of which is contained in the maps lodged with the, with the court, and I will obtain those. I would cite to you a district running from Winston-Salem to Halifax County that was before the General Assembly that was a majority black district and that was described in the state's response to the um, 
uh, Department of Justice as a reasonably compact. And these plants had two black districts. I mean, obviously, a lot of different plants can have one majority black district. But these plans you're, you're referring me to had two majority black districts. Compact majority black districts. Uh, I, I don't believe that any individual put before the General Assembly at a time but that's a, a plan can that has two. two. I know yes. you could create one here or you could create one somewhere else. But is there any evidence that you could create two simultaneously majority black, which is what your remedy uh, proposes to do? I believe, Your, uh, your Honor, that the legislators believe that could be done. There is in the record of this case... Well, they have to be right. Is there any evidence that they, that, they, that they were right about that? Well, yes, Your Honor. At page 155 of the Joint Appendix is an article in which recounts a private meeting of North Carolina Democratic legislative leaders at which, and congressmen at which they conclude that, yes, two districts can be drawn, uh, this was, of course, just two days or two weeks before the plan itself was enacted. Well, two, they, two districts can be drawn in the sense of uh, we can legislate them, or two districts can be drawn under, under the Jingles test. Two districts that can be drawn, I believe, is the thrust of their statements that some well, we people know that. I mean, it's been be. done. It's been done. The, the issue is whether two compact districts can be created, which is what would create, which would, what would produce a, an alleged Section 2 violation if you didn't create two, two black districts. But you, you, it seems to me you, you, you have to do step one, which is under, under Gingles, Jingles, whatever you want to say it, that there, that there have to be two creatable, compact, black majority districts. Of course, Your Honor, to a large extent, compactness is in the eye of the beholder. Can't, can you create two or not? What about this map one, map two, and map three? Does that show it or not? Uh, well, I mean, if you don't know, don't bother answering I'm sorry, Your Honor. I mean, has anybody sat down and done it so that you could show that you could create two compact uh, majority-minority districts in the state or majority-black districts? There, are, there were numerous plans presented compact. to the General Assembly. Fact. Compact which included two majority-minority districts. That were compact. In several of the plans, it, one of the districts was compact to the eye, and others, the, the district might not have been compact to the eye. But all the majority black is what we're talking about, not just majority-minority. I, I understand. The last time you said majority-minority, I don't yeah. think you meant that. I understand the distinction you're making. Let me ask you, oh, I'm sorry, are you still answering Justice Breyer's question? Uh, no. Okay, let me ask you a different question. Do you take the position that if uh, a given majority-minority district can be created so that the Gingle uh, is, is, is subject to the, to the Gingle's criteria, that then in pursuit of other districting objectives, a majority-minority district can be created somewhere else in the state that is in no way coincident with the, with the compact Gingles district. Do you take that position? Yes, we do. No um, overlap at all. We, we, we take that position. We it's not merely the case that you can modify around the edges, move to the right, move to the left a bit here and there in order to obtain other objectives. You can go to an entirely different part of the state and have a district which is in no way geographically coincident with the one that would, you use to satisfy the Gingles condition. Charlotte, of course, was coincident. That's, that's Virtually all answer, of these yes. districts in Charlotte and Gastonia are, are a large part but of But your district. answer is yes to my question. My, my answer is that it is within the state's discretion once it has a basis to believe that a Section 2 violation could be established. 
to determine where to place the district. That is that question is not without limit. With narrow tailoring. I thought narrow tailoring meant, and correct me if I'm wrong, because we've used it in slightly different formulations in different cases. Yes. But I thought that narrow tailoring meant that there is a wrong and that the remedy has to be as closely designed to, to cure that evil as possible. And what you're telling me now is that once you find that there's a violation, you can adopt any remedy you want. Uh, and no. that seems to me quite the, uh, the polar opposite of narrow tailoring. Uh, no, Your Honor. There are obviously limits on the state's discretion in determining where to place the district. The two most obvious are, first, Your Honor, that there must be some racially polarized voting within the area in which you locate the district, and I believe the evidence in this case is that there is racially polarized voting throughout North Carolina, including the area encompassed within the 12th district. And because, Your Honor, I believe narrow tailoring includes, and perhaps most importantly includes, a requirement that the harm to innocent third parties be minimized, I believe that fair and effective representation is a limit on the discretion of the state. What, what, is, the, what is the harm to in, innocent third parties? My understanding of your prior decisions is that the existence of harm, uh, some harm to innocent third parties, as a consequence of the action taken to remedy a discrimination, is an important element of narrow tailoring. That that would in, that that would comprehend uh, exclusion of whites from a district because of their race. That's harm to an innocent third party. I think. Well, Your Honor, the evidence in this case establishes that the 12th district provides, and the court found, fair and effective representation for all. I'm asking what a harm, an example of a harm to an innocent third party is in the context of redistricting. I take it it's the exclusion of some people by reason of their race from a different from a district that they otherwise would be in a harm that to has that has uh, ties to their to their community and to the, and, and, and and to their uh, former district a harm to an innocent third party could be denial of accessibility accessibility between them and, and their representatives yes. this district doesn't do that well, now wait you, you would say there's no harm to uh, to a, a racial group if they're made to ride in a separate railroad car so long as it's just as nice as the railroad car in which other people are made to ride? No, no, you're no, no harm to fair and effective transportation or schooling if they're made to go to a separate school? No harm to fair and effective legislation? It seems to me you're making the same argument. There's no harm to fair and effective re representation, but I've been excluded from the district because of my race, the individual says, and that shouldn't happen. I don't think that's what I'm saying, Your Honor. What I'm saying is this 12th district, for example, provides fair and effective representation for black voters. Obviously, it also provides fair and effective representation for all voters, both black and white, because it's an urban district. It provides fair and effective representation for all voters, both black and white, because it's located within an area of the state. Well, now we're back to that same peculiar test, and I don't know what it has to do with narrow tailoring. It was it's certainly our understanding, and the district court found that an element of narrow tailoring is whether there is harm to innocent third parties. And why shouldn't it also be an element of narrow tailoring whether there is any amelioration to the black voters who were the subject of the, uh, of the Gingles qualifying analysis in the first place? Apparently they are ignored. This district, district... No, but on your theory they can be ignored because you said you can put the district anywhere else in the state and it need not in any way be coincident uh, with, with, we'll call it, the Gingles qualifying district, which allows you to do this in the first place. 
the the harm to black citizens, Your Honor, is uh, the uh, dilution of their votes through racially polarized and votes. And those whose votes were diluted and subject to a Gingles remedy, on your analysis, can be ignored entirely. I don't believe that's the kind. Then why don't of you take the position that there has at least got to be some coincidence between the ultimate majority-minority district and the Gingles district, which allows you to do this in the first place? Your Honor, there, you. I believe there is coincidence between the harm. I don't understand your answer. There's no coincidence of the actual voters in what I will call the Gingles district and the and the ultimate resulting district uh, on on your theory. There need not be any coincidence. All North Carolina black citizens have been the victims of racially polarized voting. I believe that's the evidence in this case. And the state. So it is not your your position then is, is a kind of racial entitlement theory as opposed to individual group of voters entitlement theory. It would, the group of voters within the district where the racially polarized voting Any exists would be, racially, would be receive the benefit of the ameliorative action by the Wait a minute, is, is racially polarized voting a constitutional violation to somebody who votes on the basis it is, of race, commit a constitutional violation? I didn't realize that. Vote dilution through racially polarized ah, voting uh, so is the, the... the constitutional harm is having a concentrated uh, uh, number of persons of a certain race, which has been denied, which has been denied representation. It seems to me the harm assumed by Gingles Jingles is within the district that that could have been made a voting district, but has not been. That's the harm. It's not the fact that somebody engages in racial voting. That, that that's regrettable, but it's not unconstitutional. The evidence in this case, Your Honor, is that there are significant concentrations of black citizens in this district. They reside within Please, each of Your answers to the questions that part two of your argument seem to be colored by what is your main position, which you haven't had an opportunity to state. I think you said that despite Shaw 1, the district court did not have to go right into the strict scrutiny compelling state interest mold. Your first argument seemed to be that race didn't predominate, and my question to you is, if it didn't, what did? What, your, your main argument is not this Section 2. So maybe in the time remaining, you have an opportunity to say what is your main position in this case. Our first position is the district is not subject to strict scrutiny. Uh, Why not? The district court did not have the benefit of this decision, of this court's decision in Miller when it decided this case. It pl applied a test that's too lenient. It said the test is whether race was one of several substantially motivating factors in the redistricting process. The evidence in this case, uh, and the district court found that race was used in combination with five other factors. Uh, the district court found in this case that uh, the desire to create a homogeneous district was one of factors given primacy. And I think it's important for the court in examining... I think you've finished the answer to the question, Mr. Spades. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chambers will hear from... Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. I first begin pointing out that this case is not Gamillion versus Lightfoot. Nobody has excluded any citizen of North Carolina from participating in the electoral process. Black and white citizens are, through this legislation, provided for the first time in over 90 years an opportunity to now have a voice, an opportunity to have a voice, 
in the election of congresspeople in North Carolina. We have gone through a period in North Carolina where we have purposely discriminated against black people. We've then moved only through the urging of the legislation and this court to periods where we have permitted blacks to register and vote. We've moved to the Voting Rights Act. We now, for the first time, have gotten to a point where black people will have a voice or an opportunity to have a voice in the election of congresspeople. And I hope in the court's review of this case, it appreciates that we're operating not in a vacuum, but in a situation where we've had a history of purposely excluding black people. And now we're trying to devise a remedy. And that remedy is one I submit this court has approved where we say it is necessary to have a majority black district in order to give black people an opportunity to have a choice in who represents them in the legislature. Nobody's guaranteeing any black representative. We're only giving people a voice. And we know from the decision in Jingles that this court and that the Congress in enacting Section 2 felt it imperative that we create districts where people would have a real voice and not a farce. Mr. Chambers, many people think that, uh, that uh, black people can have a greater voice uh, when they are close to a majority or at least a substantial minority in a lot of districts rather than a majority in, in one or two districts. Indeed, uh, the, the, charge is, the charge is made that it is in very much in the political interest of some people to aggregate all blacks into one or two districts so that the rest of the districts can ignore their interests. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I am in total sympathy with the objective that, that you're urging upon us, but it, it certainly isn't clear as a matic, matter of principle or logic that this is the only way to achieve that objective. Indeed, there are many who think that this is moving in precisely the wrong direction, that its net effect is to reduce the, the, uh, the opportunity of blacks to have their interests taken into account. I frankly don't know what the answer is, but I, I certainly can't agree with you that this is the only way to achieve it. Yes, I understand that, Your Honor. We had a district in North Carolina that uh, provided, uh, we thought, an opportunity with 42% black votes. Because of racially polarized voting, we couldn't elect a candidate of choice. This what does that vote, mean, you couldn't elect a candidate of choice? Because is it clear that the candidate you elected ignored the interests of black people, or is it just that he was not black? It's because the candidate was not the representative of choice for African-Americans in North Carolina. Oh, I don't know what that means. I don't it means, Your Honor, the same thing it would mean for you if you didn't have a voice in the election of your representatives. We've gone through periods where we know through the legislation that's been passed in Congress where the interests of black people haven't been represented. Congress sought through the legislation in 1982 to ensure for at least once we would move beyond that. And now we have this chance and this opportunity through Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to ensure that black people, and we know through experiences in North Carolina, and this court found this in Jingles, that simply providing a, an opportunity district would not ensure the kind of opportunity that African Americans needed. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, assuming that uh, it can be shown that uh, the Gingles factors are met to establish a Section 2 violation and that there is an area in the state 
where there is a reasonably compact block of black voters that could be uh, combined in a district and where there is evidence of racially polarized voting or block voting so that you could create a district there, then Gingles would suggest that's what you look at to see if there is a Section 2 violation. Now, if you establish that, uh, can the remedy be to create a district in a different part of the state, not where the evidence showed at all that would satisfy Gingles, but go to a completely different part of the state and create something there? Is that um, a narrowly tailored remedy? Your Honor, in this case, in this well, state... Could, yes. just in general, could you answer? Well, in general, I would say that if we're looking at a congressional district and we're looking at a state, I would submit that it would permit the state, using its discretion, which is the second point I wanted to raise with you, uh, to decide how to locate that particular district in that state in order to accommodate that injury. The injury, I submit, is to all the people, all the people in North Carolina who, because of the way we've structured the system, are suffering from dilution of their votes and not having a voice in the election of representatives. Now, in this district here, we had two plans, the court asked about this, that ensured that blacks would be able to elect a representative of choice. These plans in the record, they're Exhibit 10, and they're filed with the court, and they're maps that were run through the legislature. What the state saw was it could draw a district running from Charlotte or Gastonia down through either to Wilmington or down up back through uh, near Raleigh. These were, in your words, compact districts, which is a third point that I want to raise with you. Uh, and they saw the, the potential violation of, of, uh, of Section 2. And, Justice Kennedy, you ask about whether Gastonia residents could file a lawsuit. I submit to you they could. You're not confining this to Gastonia. You could begin in Gastonia. Well, don't they have, don't they have to show the Gingles factors? They would show it. Well, the, I, we, talk we, about we, we, we can, we can uh, examine that later. But let me, let me ask you, are, are, are you trying to suggest or are you suggesting that perhaps the Gingles factors have been overemphasized or unimportant? Yes. I would submit the way we have proceeded with the Gingles factors, and it's the compactness that the court has talked about here today. Compactness ought to be viewed in terms of what's meaningful, functional, what works. But you see, what, 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 where we are, Mr. Chambers, as you know as, as well or better than I, is in two very volatile areas, uh, race and politics, in which there has been no long tradition uh, or settled juridical principles about what are neutral, uh, fair, adequate districting considerations. It's been the law of the jungle. And the point of Gingles was to try to introduce some neutral, controlled factors that could be the beginning point for building a principled jurisprudence. And I'm somewhat uh, concerned that you suggest that we somehow now sweep those under the rug and put us back into the anything-goes area. That's not what I said, Your Honor. Remember, too, in Gingles we were dealing with a state legislature, state houses, state senate seats, not with a congressional district. And second, as we talked about compactness and contiguity, uh, we were assuming that that was what was necessary in order to ensure that we bring people together with a community interest of interest. We now see from the findings in this court, now before this court, 
that we can look at things that uh, the way the state develops, and that's the peculiarity of North Carolina, to help ensure the same kind of, of uh, community of interest, the same kind of opportunity of people working together, not but, just but because that, they're but black. That but leads us just to proportional representation. No, it and, 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 and quite quite apart from uh, the, the, the Section 2, which points in, in these different directions, quite, a, quite apart from that, it seems to me that the proportional representation is the last thing that you should argue for. I'm not arguing for proportional representation. very, very dangerous and divisive. Yeah. Your Honor, I'm not arguing for proportional representation. Even the, if, we, if the court sustains the plan here, we will not have proportionate representation. We make up 22% of the population. The plans will guarantee about 2% or may guarantee at least an opportunity for 18%. We're not talking about proportional representation. What we're talking about is ensuring at once, at, at least for once, a chance now to have a chance to have a voice in the election of your representative. Thank you, Mr. Chambers. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Bender, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Let me start with the question that has uh, occupied the Court during much of this argument, and that is the question of whether if the jingles factors are satisfied um, so that there's a compelling interest in, uh, in satisfying Section 2 by drawing minority-majority districts, whether the state can lo then locate those districts anywhere in the state. It is not our position that the state can locate them anywhere in the state, and in this case, the state did not locate them anywhere in the state. The, the District 12, which was ultimately drawn here, contains two areas, the Charlotte area here and the Durham area here, which are, contain a substantial part of the black population in this district. Charlotte alone contains a little over 30% of the black population in this district. Durham contains some more. Both of those areas were in the compact district in the Shaw II plan that's in the, uh, uh, that's in the joint appendix. Um, it's, it's this plan here. Uh, Charlotte was in this district and Durham was in this district. So there is a substantial overlap between those people. And in addition, um, another limiting criterion, Justice Kennedy, is that the district must be placed in an area so that the, the, the majority of the black population in the district has been a victim of the polarized voting that invokes Section 2. And a majority of that population is politically cohesive with other minorities in the state who have been the victims of that. And the findings of fact in this case uh, which are amply supported by the evidence, are that that was exactly true here. Is it the case that if, in fact, those criteria are met, see, what I, I find it quite difficult because there's a constitutional principle that you're permitted to do this when there's a compelling need and then it has to be narrowly tailored. And by itself, narrowly tailored might suggest compactness. But is there a principle involved that if it is compact, and you insist on it, then only black-related districts would have the requirement of not taking into account protecting incumbencies, while white districts would not have such a requirement. And can the Constitution permit such a result? If that's right, and what I want you to address, if you can, is if that's right, there's a constitutional principle each way. Narrow tailoring cuts in favor of compactness. But the basic principle of equal protection of the law would seem to cut in the opposite direction. So how can those be reconciled? Well, I think that's exactly right. Um, well, if, if North Carolina had wanted to create a district in which farmers were a majority, there's no constitutional principle which would stop it from creating a, a non-compact district like well, that. Well, just, just as Breyer's question, I asked you about the, the creation of a white district. 
Would, would that be constitutional? No, not a, not a, a district based on race. Uh, Section 2 only would justify a, a district for minorities. Right, right. Uh, but I was saying that there are other – take the, the desire of a state to create a district that has a majority of farmers in it. I take it that that's a legitimate interest that a state could have and that a state in vindicating that interest could design a non-compact district. In this case, the district court found that the state acted not – to satisfy a, a desire of the states, but to satisfy an obligation of the states, an obligation to comply with federal law, an obligation to comply with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I can't believe that when the state acts to satisfy a statutory and perhaps even a constitutional obligation, it has less discretion in doing that, uh, in, in employing well, the its problem, other non- The problem, of course, is the 14th Amendment and, and its prohibition that the state not uh, act on the basis of, of race alone in, in uh, handing out uh, public benefits or in drawing district lines or whatever it is. I mean, that's why we're into this. And that's, it doesn't talk about farmers. It talks about race. But I think it? in this area, Justice O'Connor, the state can act on the basis of race in order to create a majority-minority district, in order to counteract the effects of past voting discrimination, which was present in North Carolina for a long time, and the legacy of that discrimination, which is the polarized voting. It's unusual that a state can do that. And a state Senator, what, what are the two districts, the two gingles, jingles, concentrated districts that you rely on for this compulsion? Two at the same time. There are not, not two, two different majo- programs. As far as we can tell, there were not two majority black districts. Yet that is what this uh, this uh, strange uh, this configuration was intended to create, majority. right? But, but the obligation under Jingles uh, is to create a minority opportunity district. That is what the statute says. But, but this degree of departure from normal districting principles was not necessary to comply with what you say Section 2 requires. That's right. But that would have forced the had a much more concentrated second district if you were only going for majority-minority. But instead, the state chose to go for two majority black districts in spite of the fact that no one has given us any indication of why the failure to have a second majority black district could possibly have been a Section 2 violation. Two points there. One, they chose to do that because if they had done this district, this would be a district that had almost no coherence except that it was a minority-majority district. This district mixed rural and urban people together. There was no community of interest there. And a second reason they didn't... Whereas the community of interest here is what? That they're all black? No, that 80% of them are urban. And the state deliberately decided to create an 80% urban district here and an 80% rural district here. Yeah, now, in, in figuring it out, did, yes. did, did, did they take into account uh, minority, or, or did they punch into the computer just black? In, in, uh, in doing yeah, in figuring out this strange thing. I don't know what they punched in. My impression the is computer, they punched they, in, that they punched in black. They, they were looking specifically for two majority black districts, and there is no justification that anyone has asserted under Section 2 for punching that into the computer. No, there is. Section 2 says that if minorities are denied a fair opportunity to participate in the political process, 
because of racial polarization in voting and because the minorities and when the minorities are cohesive, then you have to create a majority minority district for them. Now, it's true that in this case, as you pointed out a number of times, the second, uh, the second district that was compact was not a majority minority district. It was a 49 point something percent minority district. And of that 49 percent, I think about 42 percent were black and about 7 percent were Native Americans. The statute, Section 2, which is what we're applying here, doesn't require a majority minority district. Jingle said that, but I think it said that as an approximation. What the statute requires is to give the minorities a fair opportunity to participate in the political process. And how much of a percentage of minorities you need to do that depends upon the extent of polarized voting. About the other minorities that, that formed the almost majority in the concentrated district that was identified but not used. What about them? They were what? Hispanic and Indian? You're talking about the, the district? Yeah, you said you formed 40, you know, 49 point some odd percent. Yes. Almost a majority, though not even a majority, much less a majority black. Uh, but you formed that out of a, out of a district in which only 42 percent were black. That, would have, that district would have had about 42 well, percent. But that would have been a district in which minorities would have had a fair opportunity to have candidates of choice elected because they would have had a sizable enough population so that with a white crossover voting, racial and, voting... And the theory is that the Hispanics and Indians in that, in that concentrated district, their interests will be well enough taken care of by the all-black district. There was, there was evidence, I believe, that the two groups voted as a cohesive, uh, a cohesive minority. And all of those factors are perfectly relevant, completely relevant, necessarily relevant under Section 2. So you shouldn't have a, if it's 49.9 percent, it's no good, and if it's 50.1, 50, 50 it is. That doesn't make any sense. The sense here is to give minorities a chance to participate fairly in the political process, and North Carolina has done that. You can't force North Carolina to abandon other non-racial redistricting principles, like keeping communities of interest, urban and rural, together, or like satisfying incumbency protection. You those can't force them to give those up. Do those principles have to be historically justified? Those non-racial principles? Yeah, urban with urban, rural with rural. I don't think they have to be historically justified. They have to be non-racial and principles that the state wishes to use for non-racial We referred to traditional principles, and, and wasn't I, I assume the reason we did so was that we, we assume the, if there is tradition behind the principles, they are less manipulable to I agree. come out. Right. Yeah. Tradition is a very good way of showing that they weren't done here for racial reasons. But if you are convinced, as the court was in this case, that they are not done for racial reasons, I don't think the fact that this is the first time they decided that they needed to have an urban district because of urban problems that had recently arisen, that they think that it's important for those people to vote together, I don't think the fact that that's just happened in the last 10 years should disqualify them from doing it. Suppose the state passed a law. And the law said, uh, we can use incumbency protection as a principle, except in one instance. Anyone who's elected out of Section 2 districts and who is black can't use that principle. Would that law survive constitutional challenge? I think it would be unconstitutional. Thank you, Mr. Bender. The case is submitted.